what I wanted to talk to you about this afternoon is, is sort of uh, the, the uh, interrogation of the water that I've been uh, undertaking now for the past 18 years, um, um, or probably most of my life. I, I was born and brought up in Southampton. I still live there um, within sight and sound of the sea. I, I lie in bed at night and can hear the foghorns drifting up from the docks. Um, they were doing it yesterday morning, and it, there was a very thick mist, as there was here yesterday. And um, the mist was like a, an animal. Uh, it was spreading over the water, and I was swimming through it. And I had no idea where I was. I'd completely lost all my bearings. Um, and I'm still within sight of one of the world's major ports. Um, and you hear the grumblings and rumblings of the ships, so they were kind of protesting about having to find their way back home. There's something very plaintive about that sound, the sound of a foghorn. Um, and the flashing of lights, which were like smeary blobs, as if seen through Turner or a, or a, or a camera lens with Vaseline on it. The sense of the indeterminate, the unreachable, the dangerous. You know, that's what foghorn sounds like. Lighthouses, the flashing of a lighthouse. It's a, it's a dangerous sound, sign. Um, so this uh, sense of the water. And I, I know we had last week a terrible story from Lulworth Cove, from Dirtle Door, of a, a young girl who, 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 who drowned there. The sea pulled her in. And I'm never not aware of that. Um, I didn't learn to swim until I was 29 because of that fear I had of the sea. Um, uh, and I, I, I sourced that really to a story that my mother told me of the, uh, the, the bathroom in the, in the house that my grandfather built from, uh, from f in, the, in the suburbs of Southampton. Um, uh, he'd come back from the First World War. He'd served as a soldier. Uh, and he built a house for his family. And, and in the bathroom of this house was a big roll-top Victorian bath. Uh, and alongside this, this great big bath, he painted a picture of a great big spouting whale. Um, I never saw that bath. I never saw that house. I never met my grandfather. They all vanished before, before I came, came, to, came to existence in the salty sea of my mother's belly. Um, um, but that image stayed with me to the extent that actually I was scared of taking a bath itself. You know, the, the notion of deep water really, really intimidated me. Um, uh, and uh, this is, is going to work. Yeah. So, so this is where I swim every day now. Um, it's not a pretty place. Certainly not Podzeath, where I just swam this morning. It's an industrial waterway. Um, it's coursed by shipping, by container ships. Uh, I, I, I've been swimming there when five liners are coming up that waterway, up Southampton waterway. It's one of the major passenger. Um, ports uh, in the UK. And it's a place of emigration and immigration, of ideas, of people, of disease, of trade, of war. Uh, all these uh, things have passed in and out of Britain in its soft southern underbelly, this kind of inseminal birth canal. Uh, in the coast of England, infecting the country with new things uh, and being sent out in turn. Um, and yet the natural world goes on around it. Um, 
I always look out around this time of year for the Brent geese coming back from Siberia. All the way back from Siberia, they choose this scrubby industrial shore to come back to. They're philopatric animals, loyal to the site uh, of, their, of their establishment. And they've probably been coming here since before we were, you know. Uh, they have another world. And that's what really interests me in the sea, that it embodies this otherness. Homer Melville spoke about the ocean skin, this extraordinary membrane that we cannot penetrate, we cannot look through. And I think that's many reasons why we can do what we do to the sea and what we do to the animals in the sea and how we relate psychically and spiritually to the sea. Um, imagine if this great planet had no sea. You know, where would your soul be resi residing? Where would the poetry be without that huge sense of something which is beyond our dominion, beyond the limits of our capability, beyond the capability of our lives. And yet, it's the element that feeds us, that gives us most of the air we breathe. Um, it's the beating heart of our planet. It's the sacrificial heart of our planet. It's what's absorbed all that heat of the Anthropocene and the carbon of the Anthropocene. It sacrificed itself for us, for what we've done to the planet. And it is one big animate mass itself. Um, and for me, that, that's embodied in, in one creature, and you won't be surprised to hear who that creature is, if I go the right way, um, which is the whale. Because the whale breaks that membrane, comes leaping out to demonstrate its mammalian kinship with us, this animal which breathes air like us, which has exactly the same physiology inside, which has a huge brain, is sentient, social, communicative, has a sense of its own individual self. But what do we do with it? We put it in a concrete pool and expect it to perform. This is the first whale I ever saw back in the 1970s. Um, when myself and my sisters pestered our parents to, to take us to Windsor Safari Park, which is now Legoland. Uh, and there they had a dolphinarium. And we sat at the front of the dolphinarium and watched the dolphins leap with joy into the auditorium, jumping through a hoop and balancing a ball on their beak and catching a fish as their reward. And I realized at that moment what a messed up place the human world was because this wasn't the free, beautiful animal I wanted to see. This was a circus act. And then the dolphins were cleared from the auditorium, and in came in our other performer, an orca, Ramu, a killer whale, the apex predator, probably the most successful animal on this planet. Six million years in evolution. It's been around like this for six million years. Huge brain, sense of communication, and of itself, roaming every ocean, every ocean, matriarchal, long-living, 100 years the females get to be. Um, one thing that might uh, not uh, endear them to some of you is the fact that the males stay with their mothers all their lives. Um, an animal whose evolution has been affected by culture, the only other animal that we know whose evolution has been affected by culture. An animal, the only other animal apart from a beluga whale and a pilot whale, 
who undergoes the menopause and in whom postmenopausal females are the most important animals in the group. They direct all operations, all culture comes from them, everything is passed down through them. So Ramu swims in, and Ramu is a male. So he has this huge dorsal fin, the biggest dorsal fin in the ocean, two meters high, sizing through the water, an emblem of its majesty, of its imperial might. But Ramu's dorsal fin had flopped detumescently, a sign of his captivity. And someone held up a hoop. Ramu jumped through the hoop, threw a ball in the air. Ramu balanced on his beak and spun it about, and then he caught a fish as his reward. And for me, my connection with these animals, such as it was, because that was through the undersea water of Jacques Cousteau, my childhood encyclopedias, that was severed at that moment. It was a moment of apostasy. Because I had to give up loving these animals. It was too painful. It's too painful. We were just speaking, Tiffany and, I, Tiffany and I, just now about the fact that as we speak, Russian ships are stealing these animals from the water and selling them to Chinese marine parks. Um, I'm not making any political gestures or, or commentary today, but um, um, as I get older, I realize that the abuse of humans and the abuse of animals are coterminous. They are one and the same. But for me, I didn't know anything about ecology. I didn't know that Save the Whale campaigns were, were the beginning of the ecological movement, the beginning of fighting back against the depredation, against the, uh, the depredation of the sea. All I knew was this animal was in this tank. But something else had changed because the sea suddenly had a voice. Sorry. with which we are all quite familiar now. It's almost become a cliche in a way. Uh, the sound of a humpback whale singing. But at the end of the 1960s, when the um, pair of rather hippie young scientists, Scott McVeigh and Roger Payne, went out from the island of Bermuda, Shakespeare's island of strange noises, and lowered a hydrophone into the Atlantic and recorded that sound, no one had heard that before. No one knew that these animals made that sound. Suddenly, animals which had been dumb and unable to protest their abuse not only had a voice, but a song, a lament, a threnody. It was culture. It was culture expressed by an animal, big-brained, living the ocean, an animal other than us, a complete otherness about these animals. We were already sending space probes out to outer space when actually the aliens that we were looking for were in our ocean all that time. And that's the moment at which everything changed. And it happened within my lifetime, within many of you, your lifetimes. It was a psychic shift in our relationship 
to the world because something other than us was demonstrating culture. It's a complicated sound. It changes every year. It passes on from one whale group to another. It's almost like the hit song of the year. They learn this new song. And what to us sounds plaintive, to another whale, sounds like sex. We know now that those deep bass notes of the humpback whale song bring females into estrus, that it's actually remote sonic foreplay. So it has a whole entirely different dimension when you look at it in that way. Um, but imagine this album, when they released it back in 1970, up there in the album charts along with Led Zeppelin, whales became part of popular culture in a new way. They'd been fearful monsters of the deep back in Genesis and in creation myth. They became industrial resource when boats from all around the world were going out harpooning and rending these animals down into blubber. When I was a boy in Southampton, there were ships coming back from the South Atlantic laden with whale blubber, which was processed into stalk margarine. When my mother kissed me goodnight, her cheek brushed mine with makeup made with whale oil. Your plimsolls were laced with whale guts. They were part of the Industrial Revolution, lighting and lubricating our economic progress, our relentless economic progress. But suddenly, all that changed. It was a very sudden shift, and we're still trying to deal with that now. Uh, and it really interests me how they move through popular culture in a way. Um, you can take our humpback down now. He's, uh, he wants to take over. He wants to... Um, I can't translate, unfortunately, for you at the moment. But, um, and the way these animals move through culture, I find very interesting because of the way they animate the sea, the way they tell a story, the way they are poetic in a way. We, we can't really know what that sound is and why it's so complex. Uh, uh, that's that humpback whale I recorded in the, uh, off the western coast of Mexico. Uh, and I dove in the water and I hung there upside down like a seal with my flippers in the air to make myself into a human hydrophone to receive the sound in my body. Um, and, uh, well, I was turned on. Um, but uh, I, we cannot bridge that gap. We can't bridge what John Berger called the narrow abyss of miscomprehension between ourselves and the natural world. But what we can do, and what we can do if we have a creative impulse, which I would contend everyone does have, is try and encompass the otherness of the sea in, in poetry, in art, in just the way we express ourselves in our... John Fowles wrote a very interesting essay called The Tree, where he talked about, actually, you can't write about nature, because it is only that experience. There's no words for it. There's no words to, to uh, bridge that gap. It's just the purity of the experience. Um, and for me, that's what the sea represents. Um, it's that sense of impossible history, impossible experience, the width of it. Um, so my book, Rising Tide, Falling Star, I try to look at the way humans have come to terms with these stories. Uh, and one of the people who really interested me was Elizabeth Browning, who in the mid-19th century, suffering from some 
some undiagnosed disease we still don't know what she was suffering from, came to Sidmouth, came to Devon to try and cure herself in the waters. And she wrote passionately of the water. Um, very unusually, um, her family were really attuned to the water. Her sister swam in the sea every day. She was like my equivalent, right through the winter in Sidmouth. Um, it puts this notion of Victorian sort of just being trundled out into bathing machines and sort of stepping out into the water and for a quick dip and come It's complete rubbish when you look at the, the, the other kind of lives that are connected with the sea. And Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who to me looks like sort of a 19th century Kate Bush, um, had this extraordinary relationship with the sea. She was sent by her family from Sidmouth to Torquay because Torquay was one of the first spas, watering holes aligned to the sea um, in, the, in Britain. It was purpose-built. If you go there now, there are concrete steps built down, take you directly into the water, something that health and safety would never allow nowadays. This notion of actually walking into this, 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 this medium, this otherness. Um, she would actually take sea bars. There was a hotel next to her house. And this hotel was open in the cellar to the sea. And the sea would flood in at high tide into the basement of the hotel. And the guests would go down and lie in the, in the cellar of the sea to, 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 to take the benefit of the sea. And Elizabeth would look out from her balcony, even when she was gripped by this terrible malady, which we still don't know what it was. She was addicted to her opium by now to just get through the day. And the sea starts to seem to seem something almost terrible to her. There's something about it, some foreboding. Uh, and indeed, her, her brother, her beloved brother, with whom she was very close, sails out from Torquay one Saturday and never returns. Um, the ship, the boat on which he's sailing, sinks. Um, Victorian ha legend has it that Elizabeth Boutbranding is looking out from her window and watching as the ship, ship sinks. Um, but that moment of disaster, of catastrophe, uh, completely turned her against the sea, with good reason. She left almost immediately Torquay, was taken back to London on a special carriage, a suspended carriage, so as not to shake her. Uh, it had to stop for five, for five, it took, the journey took five days because it had to keep stopping uh, so as not to disturb her equilibrium. Uh, and she, she completely uh, had to renounce the sea in many ways. Um, but if you read her writing, which is very influential on people like Virginia Woolf um, and Oscar Wilde, you can see the traces of this beauty that turns into terror. Uh, and she was indeed an influence on this chap, who is the original wild swimmer because it's Oscar. Uh, and Wild was also a great visitor to Torquay, swam there a lot. His son spoke about Oscar as swimming like a shark. He was incredibly <coughs> adept in the water. He was, he was someone who rather as you see in the history of people associated with water, there's a sense of um, sensuality about it. Uh, Baudelaire spoke of swimming as being like being kissed a thousand times a minute. Uh, Swinburne, who's famously sadomasochistic, was always throwing himself in the sea off the Isle of Wight with gay aplomb, and I use that word precisely. Um, 
And Wild, uh, Wild's association with the sea was again quite fatal because it was at Torquay when he wrote the letter to Bosey about Bosey's rose leaf lips, which were made for kissing. Um, Bosey and he had a big argument in Torquay. Bosey stormed out. Um, that later letter was letter found in a rent boy's pocket and sold to a blackmailer. And it was the letter that was used to blackmail Wilde and the letter that was used to send him to prison um, uh, uh, at the Old Bailey. So for Wilde, the sea became another connection for him. The tempestuous sea, the rising sea outside Torquay, the stormy sea, became the sea that had, had somehow sent him to prison. But it was also the first thing he let, did when leaving Reading Jail. He left straight from England, went straight to France, to the sea and built a little hut, a little bungalow on the sea, and would have spent the rest of his days swimming there quite happily, except that he invited Bosey back. And his letter to Bosey says, I have a pair of swimming drawers waiting for you. Uh, and it was another fatal attraction of the sea. And this watery baton passes on to, sorry, gonna get this right in a minute, to this young man who was also swimming in Torquay on that same beach. He would grow up to be a poet too, Wilfred Owen. Um, he was taught to swim by his father. His father, who was a railway clerk in Shropshire, had a mania for the sea to the extent that he had this Walter Mitty life where he'd dress up as a captain and go to Liverpool docks, um, picking up sailors. Not for that reason, but because of his interest in the sea, he'd bring back Lascars, Indian sailors. And Wilfred remembers as a boy seeing their um, bare brown feet under the tea, tea table. But Wilfred was inoculated with this love of the sea. And at Meadfoot Beach, he, he swam. Um, uh, it's a very dark picture. You can, can't see it, really. He swam uh, incessantly in the uh, two or three summers leading up to the First World War. And he had this other, I'm going to go back, I'm going to, he had this other life ahead of him, really. Um, the sense of the way we see Wilfred Owen now as someone doomed, um, it's not how he saw himself. He looked out to that clear turquoise water of Torbay. Uh, when you see it, it's this incredibly intense blue, partly because of the rock formation and the red cliffs. There's a great color clash going on there. Um, he looked to his future. He saw his future in the sea. Um, but of course, what happened was, the, was, was he was sucked into this war, um, costumed and processed through the war. Through the war. But it's very interesting, if you read his uh, letters um, from, from, from that period, he's constantly, he's constantly trying to find ways to get, to sw get into the water. Um, he's always swimming, he swims in Southport, he swims in the river at um, Ripon in Yorkshire. Uh, the last thing he does in Britain when he's summoned back to the war, uh, on the last day of August 1918, 100 years ago, um, was to swim off Folkestone Beach. And he sees another young officer, a handsome young man from Harrow, uh, and he speaks to this person he sees who's walking out of the sea, a sort of a bit of a Daniel Craig moment where this handsome young man walks out of the surf. Uh, and he sees invested in that figure everything that he's fighting for. He's fighting for poetry. He's not fighting for king and country. 
He's fighting for the poetry that he's been writing. And he's been, he now goes back to a Western Front in which the sea has become a perverted, fetid place. The men come back from the, uh, come to, come, walk, come, go into action wearing life jackets they've stolen from the cross-channel ferries because there are so many craters in which they could drown. Um, there are tanks surfing through the mud. Tanks were called land ships. And you have men with periscopes as though they're in submarines. And the night before battle, Wilfred supervises by candlelight as his men's feet are, are anointed with whale oil to protect them against trench foot. During the First World War, 175,000 whales die to protect men's feet, but also to provide munitions. Their glycerine goes to make nitroglycerine for bombs. So these placid animals become part of that first war of the Anthropocene. They become part of that destruction. And it's an incredibly ironic notion. They were also used as target practice from the air by the RAF. So Owens, whose writing had all been about the natural world, saw the natural world entirely perverted. Um, it's a terrible thing, the perverseness of war being echoed by the perversity of, of humans' reaction to the natural world. And I, I, was, I, I swam in this canal last weekend. Um, this is in Ours in northern France. And on the 4th of November, almost exactly 100 years ago, um, Owen and his men were roused at 5.45 a.m. and walked to the edge of this canal. And they started building bridges across the canal um, under intense fire from the German, retreating Germans who were lined up on the shore. This hail of bullets. In, in Futility, one of his most amazing poems, Owen talks about men breasting the surf of bullets, the sense that this, this evil, evil sea has risen up. And the last thing that Owen does is he starts to cross the water on a raft, and a bullet hits him. And we don't know in that moment what happened. But I like to think, or I don't like to think, but I imagine him as Icarus falling into the water in this last, last sort of reverse baptism, a reverse birth, into this canal. This canal is beautiful now. It's placid and quiet. I swam in it as, at dawn again as the mist was rolling up it. And it's strange to think of the waters having a history, having a kind of homeopathic memory. But actually, the water does have a history. I work at Southampton University, and uh, scientists at the National Oceanographic Centre in Southampton talk about parts of the water being 400 years old, other parts being 4,000 years old. Water itself retains a history. So the sense of this poetic elemental mass retaining a memory of what has happened seems to be very implicit in the way we react to the water. I, mean, I always wonder if the sea remembers me when I go back to it. I'm in exactly the same place every day. Does it remember me? Is it, I, it's. But the other person who I became really interested in when I was writing Rising Tide, Falling Star is Virginia Woolf. Uh, you don't, anyone who's read Woolf don't, doesn't need me to tell them of her connection with the water, to the lighthouse, the waves, much of her writing. 
She was, of course, famous for holidaying in St. Ives. What was really interesting, when I was reading her diaries, she writes this extraordinary passage in 1927. She's just finished to the lighthouse. She's about to start the waves. And she says, no one in the future, no biographer, will, be, uh, will ever realize that all my imagination is held in that distant fin passing through the sea. It's an amazing notion. Wolfe read Moby Dick three times. She had at least two copies of the book. She called Vita her lover, my porpoise. She wrote incredibly powerfully about the sea. Um, you, see, you feel it into the lighthouse in a way which reflects on Melville's great book, I think. The sea is as a separate entity, as something that can clutch at you, as something which is, resists you at the same time it draws you in. And here she's dressed in her mother's Victorian dress. Her mother, who was a great pre-Raphaelite beauty, photographed by Julia Maggot Cameron and those wonderful sepia images, which themselves look as though they were taken underwater. They're all taken in Cameron's greenhouse in the Isle of Wight, lit by natural light, but an aqueous, watery light. Uh, and Wolfe loved those photographs. She's channeling her mother here, who is, of course, the major figure of, of To the Lighthouse. Uh, and she already seems like Ophelia. Ophelia, who drowns like a mermaid, her billowing dress around her. And, of course, that's how Wolfe leaves us, um, floating out down the ooze and out into the English Channel. All that is presaged in, in the waves into the lighthouse, that poetic mortality. The beauty of a drowning is that it leaves you undefiled. It doesn't smash you up. It doesn't poison you. You are left whole. It's a kind of transition from one element to the next, from one world to the next. There's something beautiful about it. And we know, because we know people who have died from drowning and have come back to life, we know that there's a moment where euphoria takes over and it becomes a euphoric way to go. That's why it seems attractive. I'm not recommending it, but, um, but uh, and I think that's why uh, Wolf writes about it in the way she does. Um, I was in Bantry Bay earlier this year for the West Cork Literary Festival, and Wolf visited this place in 1936 and spoke about how it reminded her of the Cornwall of her, of her youth, um, but of something timeless, something that seemed to abide through history, almost in the way that Orlando changes sex and changes character in her great book, which is the embodiment of Vita, of course, uh, moving through history, moving through place and time in the way that the whale does in Moby Dick. Herman Melville speaks about Moby Dick as a kind of ghostly presence who's able to be in two places at one time. And no one knows when he or she died or was born. There's a sense of time travel, which links back to The Tempest, I think, Shakespeare's last play, his most watery play, where Prospero talks about what seest thou in the dark backwards abyss of time. That sort of resonance to me, is then picked up by Sylvia Plath, who grew up in Boston um, on the sh north shores 
of, 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 of New England, um, talking about the sea as, as something, again, animate. She talks about as a young girl staying in her grandmother's house and she sees a storm coming across Cape Cod Bay and it's, it's coming towards her, like almost snarling. And it seems very foreboding and yet very exciting. And she grows up, um, she goes holidaying in Cape Cod and it's a great sandy spit held out into the Atlantic where she spends some of her happiest times. And she again is adopting a watery persona. She's very much reading Wolf. Um, she's channeling Marilyn Monroe here. This is her great heroine. Uh, that's really what she's doing here. She's, 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 she's uh, shifting shape herself. Um, yet, of course, she too has a problematic relationship with the, the real world or the human world. Um, she tries to drown herself uh, but fails, um, uh, meets Ted Hughes. And I know there's some people in this room who can't even say Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath in the same sentence. Um, and I respect that. But um, that initial meeting with Ted Hughes is incredibly passionate and they spend the only six happy weeks of their life together here on this beach in Cape Cod, a place which I know very, very well. I've been spending 18 years of my life there, staying there, seeing its animals on these beaches. Um, and it becomes, a, it becomes like Ted Hughes talks in, in his birthday letters, which is his, his attempt to come to terms with, with Plath and his relationship with her. And he talks about this miracle of this time that they were on the sea and, and Plath finding lucky stones, which seem to be microcosms of this happiness of the sea. And the one happy line in her most bitter poem, Daddy, talks about the bean green, water, bean green waters of, of Narzet, which is this um, beach in, in Cape Cod, and a head popping up. It's a seal but it has to be a reflection of Virginia Woolf's fin, the unattainable but the beautiful. Um, and of course, the terrible thing is that this beach, um, this is very close by now, which in winter becomes a, a deathly place. It's a ship's graveyard. There are 3,000 shipwrecks embedded in these dunes. And when there are big storms on the Cape, their bones start to poke out from the dunes, the old timbers coming out. Um, uh, these shores have become newly mortal um, last month um, on this beach, beach I swim in very regularly, a man was taken by a great white shark. Um, so the sense of the natural world beyond our dominion is still there, that you can be on a New England beach in the most powerful, richest democracy on earth, and yet an animal can come and take you. Um, I, I'm sorry, but I find that reassuring and perverse, I suppose. But then I have a perverse relationship to the animals of the sea in that I do feel some kind of sensual attraction to them. And when I first went to Cape Cod back in the year 2000, invited there by my friend John Waters, who's um, uh, a writer and artist, film director, um, I was going back, um, coming back, getting the ferry back to... Um, back to Logan Airport, I hadn't realized that you could go whale watching in this place, that you could see whales there. 
and I had time to kill before I was, my, my ferry was due to take me back to Boston. And I saw whale watching advertised on a placard on, on, on the pier, Macmillan Pier. Uh, and I felt very dubious about this. I thought, mm, you know, is this is another circus act. Are they feeding whales with flounders out there? Or, you know, do they keep them in a pen and release them for the tourists to see? But nonetheless, I paid my $12 and stood rather defiantly on the prow of the boat. And half an hour later, about 10 feet away from me, maybe a little bit more, a 40-ton, 40-foot humpback whale breached right in front of me. And it was like this incredible moment, like someone to put the freeze button on nature, this wonderful creature hanging there in a halo of sea spray with its huge pectoral fins, which earned it its scientific name, Megaptera novoangliae, big-winged New Englander, a barnacled angel hanging there demonstrating its mammalian kinship with us. And being a practiced writer, I responded very poetically. I said, fuck. <laughs> because there are no words to much close Every poet knows that. Every poet knows that. There are no words to close that gap between reality, because there's this reality. We sit here in this tent, beautiful festival, a beautiful county, but we've been brought here by artificial means. I don't think many of us swam here. I tried, but it's a long way. This is the reality of our world. Most of our 90% of all life is doing this. It's in this ocean, and it's doing this. That's what it's about. It's not about what you and I are doing. That's what this planet is about. And it's incorporating that animal. And when Roger Payne recorded the sound of that animal, he said, this is the sound of the ocean. It's a sound as big as the ocean. And I think our relationship to these animals is a lot to do with knowing that connection and actually turning our back on it, because we can't take it. Because when you see these animals, they are beyond exquisite. This was a, a, a stranded dolphin which I saw in Provincetown a couple of years ago with my friend Dennis Minsky, who works for I4, um, the uh, whale uh, uh, animal charity. He was sent down to take samples to see if they could determine why it had stranded. But for me, it was a rather silly opportunity to lie down beside an animal like that and feel that connection and run my hands down her flank and feel her hydrodynamic beauty, the bloom on her like a plum that appears after the animal dies. That skin is tissue thin. It's continually sloughing off. Even the greatest of whales are continually sloughing off their skin, almost to lubricate themselves as they move through the water. And I think one of the reasons for our relationship to these animals, especially dolphins, is that they're almost like us in dolphin wetsuits. And when I've attended necropsies of these animals with some anticipation and apprehension because I'm about to see these animals taken apart by a, 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 a zoologist with a scalpel with the skill of a sushi chef, um, when they come apart, it's actually even more beautiful because you realize they really are exactly like us. All the same organs, brain, all of us squeezed into that animal, an animal that has been perfected by evolution in the ocean, an animal 
that did the unholy thing of leaving the land outrageously and going back to the sea, performing a, ver a reverse evolution. The outrage of that, it's the outrage of that. And it's what those animals do now and how they bear witness, how they bear witness to us. We know dolphins have signature whistles. We know they have their own name. We know that dolphins, unlike other animals, unlike even primates, recognize themselves on moving film. They are aware of their existential selves. A dolphin, like other toothed whales, like sperm whales, like orca, can echolocate other animals and tell how they're feeling. So they can feel remotely how one another feels. They know whether you're loved up, pissed off, angry, exactly what your emotional state is. So you are traveling in a pod, which is like one big brain, connected, collectively individual, communal. They cannot exist apart, which makes this young female who I'd seen alive the day before in a small pod so sad in a way. But in another way, to be close to one, an animal like this is to really celebrate its beauty. And I don't hesitate to use the word beauty about these animals. And I think they are aware of their own beauty. Why should an animal not be aware of its own beauty? So when I've swum with sperm whales, which I've done many times, uh, the first time I swam with sperm whales, I was incredibly in scared, basically. I was in the Azores, very deep waters, uh, out in the middle of the Atlantic, waters about three miles deep. I never learned to swim, I was 29. You know, I mean, and now I'm suddenly in this water, swimming towards these animals. Uh, the first time I encountered them, there was a pod of about 12, just hanging at the surface. And the largest one detached herself and they are matriarchal animals, remember, detached itself from the pod and swam directly at me, straight towards me. And these are the only whales which can and indeed have swallowed human beings. And it's not a nice way to go. You're sucked through a series of four stomachs and digested with gastric juices so strong that in the old days of whaling, when, when men were cut out of whales, they'd been bleached white by the process. All this is going through my head as this whale is coming closer and closer at which point I lose control of my bodily functions and think, oh, if you're in the water with sharks and you piss, it gets them really angry. And anyway, how rude to come visiting and pee on someone's doorstep. And then I hear, I don't, I feel, I don't hear her sonar moving through my skull, my sternum, the whole of my skeletal structure creating a sectional sound picture of me, I feel that being beamed back from me. I feel the meanness of me being replicated in her head, back to that huge head. And it's ironic, I'd spent all these years trying to describe a whale, and here was a whale trying to describe me. And then she turned, and as she's close to me, as this chair is now, and looked at me with this huge, sentient eye. For a moment, I thought the abyss of miscomprehension had been closed, but it hadn't. There is always that distance between us, that tantalizing distance. It's never closed. It's never closed. So even when a whale like this one swims underneath you, and this whale swam underneath me, belly up, because that's the only way animals 
like these, which have eyes on the sides of the heads, the only way they can look at you stereoscopically in 3D, it's the only way they can really see you, what are they really seeing? They're very old animals, long-lived animals. Some whales, bowhead whales, arctic whales, can live to be 300 years old. They predate human whaling. They predate the human, all our revolutions and our ideas in our modern world. They are ancient, abiding animals. They try to close the gap between us, but I wonder if they think it's worth it. You know, we mince them down for food, for pet food. We still are doing that in Iceland and Norway and Japan. We're still doing, doing that. Yet the sperm whale, like the orcas, are tremendously successful animals. And Hal Whitehead, who is my hero, I know he's Angela's hero too, friend of mine, artist Angela Cocaine, um, wrote a wonderful book about sperm whales, social sperm whale social evolution in the ocean. It's full of data and pie charts and graphs and everything you might want to know about sperm whales. At the very end, he asks in a very, very mischievous manner, if these animals are so aware of themselves, are they existentially wondering about their place in the universe? Have they indeed developed their own sense of religion? I had lunch with Richard Dawkins once. I didn't tell him that. <laughs> so when you see an animal like this, I'm sorry she seems rather ghostly in this moment. She's a sub-adult female in the Azores. She's uniquely marked with these patterns, these gray speckles. It's rather like cetacean coat, um, haute couture. It's sort of the comme de garçon of the whale world. As she twirls and pirouettes there, why isn't she aware of her beauty? She knows she is unique amongst all animals. All animals are unique. We are all unique. Yet we think all whales look like one thing. I mean, some people don't. I mean, sometimes I despair when I write pieces for the newspaper. They, I'm writing about sperm whales. They put a photograph of blue whales. Well, all whales are the same, aren't they? Well, you know. Um, it's the uniqueness of those animals that, that draws me on um, and the untouchableness of them. Five whales and a human, me, a female taking care of four juveniles. The fourth is just beneath there. You can't see very well there. But um, she's taking care of calves which are not genetically related to her. It's what they call alloparental care. But to us, it looks like altruism. It's social organization, implicit and explicit. When you're in the water with these animals, you hear them communicating with one another from tens of miles away. Like whale internet completely physically connects you through the water. Sound travels five times faster through the water. These whales are feeling one another. They feel one another. And when you're in the water with them, you feel them. You can't touch them. I would never touch a whale in the water. Generally, I don't go prodding people when I first meet them anyway. But you feel them. How can you not know they're there? Um, so these, these pictures are rather alike. This is another pair of young adults um, that we were diving with in Sri Lanka last year, myself and my dive partner, Andrew Sutton. That day, we were in the, in the water with 150 sperm whales. So it seems greedy of me to say that, doesn't it, really? But, um, and you just felt this sense of Edenic life of what the world was like before humans. 
And if you read Moby Dick in the chapter, does the whale perish? Will the whale perish? Does he does the whale diminish? Will he perish? Which Angela and I invited Sir David Attenborough to, to, to read for our Moby Dick big read. The gentleman that he is, he sent us a, a disc the next day with his reading on it. You can hear it online, mobydickbigread.com. It's all free. The book is read for you free there. The artists curated by Angela uh, and the readings. Um, when Attenborough reads that chapter, and at the end, Melville speaks to the sense of extinction. And he says, <coughs> will the whale go extinct? No, because one day the world will be, world will be flooded anew and the Tuileries and the Kremlin will be drowned and the whale will spout his frothed defiance to the skies. Incredible piece of prophecy. I'm going to stop talking now with an image here from Angela, her phrenology of the whale, which for me speaks to the intensity of this relationship, this fractured relationship between human history and natural history, and the pivot at which we sit now. It could go either way. Extraordinary, these huge animals, their fate lies in our hands. Thank you very much. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. That was so amazing. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. Um, uh, they're fairly puny issues in comparison with what had the breadth of what you just touched on. But um, I just remembered from years and years ago the um, the manatee. Yeah. Uh, what was that all about? Was that just randy sailors imagining things? Or was it an actual, when you talked about that you had that um, sensory connect, yeah. sensual connection, yeah. Yeah. What, what did, have you had any thoughts about what that was I, all I about? I can never believe that they mistook manatees, which oh. are okay. <laughs> for mermaids. Yeah. But I saw a photograph of a beluga, funnily enough, the beluga which is in the Thames at the moment. And... At a certain position, the beluga, which is unique amongst cetaceans because it can articulate its head at right angles. So, it can, so when it goes like that, its head goes like that. And then its strange bone structure is such that it looks like legs, but fused together into a kind of mermaid's tail. It's remarkable. If you just Google beluga and loads of photographs, I could, and also because the beluga is very vocal, it, it's very, it was called the canary of the sea, very had this wonderful sort of sweet-sounding song. I could really, I could actually imagine why those had become the, 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 the legendary mermaids, you know. Um, but the manatees, I don't get it, you know. I mean, it's like, you wouldn't imagine a hippopotamus unless, you know, it's a bit like the uh, hippos in, in tutus and Fantasia, you know. It's, uh, they don't really look much like uh, the mermaids we know anyway, but I, there's no reason why they shouldn't look like that. But, um, but yeah, it's an interesting point. And of course, whales. Before we knew what whales really looked like, they were they became really they were really shape shifting. You know, the the sea dragons at the end of the known world. You know, there be dragons. Well, they seem to be the dragons out there. You know, you can easy, even now I see like right whales, for instance, at the surface, and I just that's it's not even a real animal. You know, they, you can see why stories of sea serpents came up as well. 
पर ना Um, I was really interested when you said that uh, water has different ages. Yeah. Could you elaborate on think, on that? I think what happens is that the, um, there's a lot of movement in the water at, at the top layer, and some movement at the bottom. But there are middle strata of of the water which remain the same, and they retain the same oxygen. And I think that's what they're doing. They're measuring the oxygen. It's the same molecules which are persistent throughout history through. As far as they, I don't know how they age or oxygen molecules, but clearly they can. So yeah, so there are still parts. I mean, we know there are pools in the ocean where there are different salinities. Um, it's not all the same water. It's not all the same constituent water. It's it's very different, as you know. The, the temperature is different. The salinity is different. Um, uh, there's all sorts of things that affect it. But yes, apparently there's these these parts. It's very It's a very tantalizing notion that there is something so fluid, which is just really a liquid gas, actually retains a sense of age. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Oh, If you wanted to see blue whales, Where and when would you go? Okay, it's a very good question uh, about where where to see blue whales and, and and when. I've been lucky enough to see them. I last saw them in the Azores. Um, they're quite regular visitors there. In the summer, I was there in June, pretty regular. I would recommend an a, an organisation called Espaso Talasa. If you just Google whales and and the Azores, they're on the island of Pico. They have a chart online, and you very good because you can see exactly when what species appear when. It's not a it's, you can't. I mean, it's a, they don't book them to be there in June, you know. Um, but they are quite regular now. The good news about blue whales, and the good news about whales in general, um, is that the the moratorium on the hunting of great whales, which was announced in 1983 and implemented in 1986, is working. You know, blue whales are now swimming up the Irish Sea. Um, humpback whales are increasing 10% each year on the east coast of um, Australia. So whales are doing. I was in I was in Queensland Queensland last month. Amazing numbers of humpback whales just breaching everywhere. Um, incredible sight. Um, the other really good place to see blue whales is Sri Lanka. Sorry, this is not good for carbon footprints, but Sri Lanka. I know this sounds crazy. I went to look at blue whales there off the coast, the very tip, Dondra Head, which is held out into the Atlantic. So it's quite deep water very quickly, about eight nautical miles out, and you get very deep water. That day I saw two dozen blue whales. Um, it's a very good place to see blue whales as well. So yeah, and they are incredible animals. They are mind-boggling. They are blue, but mottled blue. They are too big to look at in one go. You just have to look at a bit. They're too big. Um, extraordinary animals. It doesn't seem possible something like that could be alive. Very beautiful. Good luck. Hello. Um, Hi. You you mentioned at the end the survival of these this species or these species um, is in our hands, mm. and I just wonder on a sort of 
a general level, like a, on a general public level, if um, if there are things that we can do. I mean, I guess I'm thinking about like eating fish and taking from the ocean. Yeah. Is that something you address in your book? Is there? I, I don't tell people that? this usually, but sperm whales take far more fish out of the sea than we do every year. If you told certain <laughs> nations that, that would encourage them. So I don't usually use it. Um, we're not affecting them with the amount of fish we take out. It's what we do to it. It's, it's obviously plastic. We all know about that. But it's also heavy metals, PCBs, organochlorines, all the stuff. And stuff which, you know, EU have banned. You know, most places that's that. But it's, it remains persistent in the marine environment. And that's one reason why you have, you know, the orcas, they reckon at least half the population of orcas now have really um, impacted immune and fer uh, fertility um, issues because of, because of these um, uh, persistent chemicals. Um, anthropogenic noise, the amount, if you imagine this, the, 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 from a, a human point of view, the, the ocean was pretty silent 100 years ago. The invention of steam and diesel, seismic surveys for oil, um, uh, military sonar. When they, uh, when in the days after 9-11, when they closed the shipping lanes between Boston and, and Europe, the scientists in Cape Cod who were working on recording whale vocalizations realized the whales had stopped shouting. So, you know, it's, it's really a case of, you know, so many impacts on, on their world really, you know, as big as this huge element is, you know, we are able to impact it in quite a severe way. I think sound is one of the really big issues, really big issues, because these animals live in a world of sound. It's their sense, you know, you have, it's the way they see. Um, that's one of the biggest issues, I think. Whaling is not that big an issue, actually. It has a symbolic influ uh, um, uh, impact. But you know, this, it's minimal to the kind of damage we are doing on our everyday, in our everyday lives. It's a really good question. Thank you. On which amazing note, thank you so much, Philip. I'm, no, I'm not the only one who's been blown away by this, thank and you. we'll all be going to buy your book. <laughs> Philip Hall, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.